Hey, if you're new, um, we have for four weeks been talking about a very serious subject called happiness. And there are some, and we'll have a resource list at the end of this. Like for me, there are some paradigm changes in my thinking. I've tried to pass them on. But today, last in the series, and it's like a practicum. It's here is the recipe practically, if you're saying, what are some things that I can do to help live the kind of godly, joyful, rejoicing, happy life that God has for me? What are some practical steps? So I just kind of crammed them all into this message. And I had to high grade it. There's a ton more uh, other stuff that you could talk about. But these are, I think, the rocket boost. If you start implementing these things in your life, it'll make a difference. And I use an acronym, maybe a better acronym than the Jesselsep, but that's debatable. I think that one's really good. And it's just steps, S-T-E-P-S. So that's the acronym we're gonna run on. There's a lot to do, so we're gonna jump in. So here is a recipe, I think, finishing this off, practicum. Here's how you can start to live a joyful, rejoicing, happy, brilliant life that God wants for you. So number one, S, serving. Serving. It's early 2020. Anyone write out a mission statement for 2020? Nobody, wow. You guys are on it, man. I feel really good about myself right now, thank you. (laughs) Well, it's not a bad idea to do. Uh, Jesus had a mission statement for his life. And it's found in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28. And this is what he says. The son of man came. Here's why I'm here. Here's why there's the incarnation. Here's why I left paradise. Here's why I left heaven. The son of man came not to be served. We live in a world that you know you're on the top if you have people serving you, right? Jesus is on the top, is what he says. Not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I don't think many live by that MO today. I think for the most part, what we do is this. We look at life and we say, hey, what's best for me? I'm so glad Jesus, when he was headed to the cross, didn't say, hmm, hey, what's best for me? No, he gave himself as a ransom for us. We used to celebrate as a culture people that served and sacrificed, men that did that for their families, women that did that with their kids and that. But, but now it's, you know, I gotta have me time. It's all this kind of, this selfishness that has crept in. What if we reversed that and we started saying, hey, it's not what's best for me, it's not me time. What's the best for my wife? What's the best for my spouse? What's the best thing for me to do right now for my kids? What's the best thing for me to do for my city that God has put me in? What's the best thing for me to do for my job or for this business or for my employer? What if we started thinking like that? How radical would that be? Well, Jesus didn't put this verse in 
to virtue signal, look how great I am, Jesus lived it. And probably the best example is what we call the Last Supper, the hardest night for any human in history. If there's a day that you would think Jesus would be off his game, it would be that day. But here's what happens. At that Last Supper, he's got his 12 disciples with him. And Luke tells us this, that they were arguing among themselves about who is the greatest. Jesus is in their midst, and what are they doing? About who's the greatest. The greatest human ever is in their midst, and they're arguing about who's the greatest. It'd be like me showing up with a 1992 dream team and telling them, you know what, I'm actually better than all of you at basketball. Right? You'd say, you are ridiculous. That's this argument, right? It's just ridiculous. And so they're having this argument when all of a sudden everyone starts to smell something. And it's not the Brussels sprouts. It's their feet because no one's washed them. And this is 2,000 years ago where you're wearing sandals and you're walking everywhere. Dusty roads, lots of donkey, cow, and horse exhaust everywhere. Right? You got hobbit feet with these yellow, crusty, nasty nails. That's what you got. No pedicures back then. So no one wants that job. They'll just keep arguing about who's the greatest with a nasty smell, except for Jesus. And Jesus gets up, grabs a bucket, probably a scrub brush, probably metal, like, okay, this needs to happen, and washes his disciples. He serves them. And this is what he says. After he's done that, after he's demonstrated what service looks like, he says this. It's John chapter 13, verse 17. Look at this verse. If you know these things, what things? Serving. Serving in not the best of conditions. If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. Serving is one of the keys to living a life that's full of happiness. That's the best example ever. I'll give you the second best example I have. It's my wife. She is such an example of service, sometimes in conditions that aren't the best. I'll give you my example of this. In 2009, we as a family went to India. So it was my wife, me, and our four kids at that time. Myron was not born yet. Um, it was a wonderfully difficult trip. And about halfway through, we crossed the southern tip of India from one side to the other side. And it was a 12-hour van ride on extremely windy roads. So I'm in the van, and it's me, my son Elijah, who was only six months old at the time, excuse me, 16 months old at the time, and then my wife. And so we're just kind of winding along when all of a sudden Elijah starts to vomit. And I'm like the matrix, you know? I'm just like, whoa, just making sure it does not hit me. My wife, this was her response. She puts out her hand and starts catching it. And it's overflowing. So like a conveyor belt, she's conveying it back and dumping it onto her dress, one handful at a time, over and over and over again. This reverse curry just all over the place, right? So the car pulls over, we get out and I'm looking at my wife who's wearing this blue like missionary dress. 
She looked straight out of a fundamentalist cult from Utah. I'm like, <laughs> covered in this Agent Orange curry, right? A clash of colors, no doubt. And I had this irresistible urge just to hug her. But I couldn't because in India, there's no public displays of, of affection. So I escaped the hurl hug. But man, I admired her. I'm like, dude, you were, aw-. no, no high five either because you got it on your hand. <laughs> That's just naturally what she does. She just serves, sometimes in not the best of conditions. My wife is one of the most joyful, happy people that I know because she's got this one right here. She serves. So here's one of my favorite quotes. I read this book a long time ago and I, this quote just caught me. And it's by Viktor Frankl. Look at this quote. Happiness is the unintended side effect of one's personal dedication to a cause greater than oneself. I put mission in there. That's mission. Or the byproduct of one's surrender to a person other than oneself. That's a great definition of serving. That's brilliant. Well, what does Viktor Frankl know about anything. He wrote this in response to having survived years in a Nazi concentration camp. He knows all about difficulty. And yet he said this, in the midst of that hugely difficult situation, this is what I found. Happy people had mission and service. In the midst of the most brutal thing that we know in modern history, these people, these people had it because they served. I can give you statistics. There's a study done on people that were severely depressed and they took them and they asked them to do one thing. I want you to volunteer somewhere. And they gave them a list of places to volunteer. Volunteer weekly at this place. They found severely depressed people, if they would volunteer, they found 89% of them pulled out of their depression, became happy people instead. That's how powerful it is. Jesus, happy are you if you do what I'm showing you to do. Another survey or another study that was really good was five ladies that had severe MS. I don't know if you've ever walked with somebody with MS. That is a brutal disease. It it really takes it out of people. And what they did with these five ladies is this. They trained them for peer support for 65 other ladies that had MS. So their job was to help out these 64 other ladies that suffered from MS as well. Here's what they found. Months later, after they had been serving these 65 people, they, they were less depressed, more social, more energy, willing to try new things, full of confidence. The list was just staggering. And, and in the study, I can get it for you, the, they, they interviewed these ladies and just the quotes that they have, what this did, how this transformed my life, serving these people. Number one, you want to be happy? Listen to the words of Jesus. Serve, number one. Number two, the T. You should know this one well. Thanksgiving. Give thanks. So 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 18 says this. You guys could mark this. You can underline it. Everybody should know this one. Give thanks in all circumstances. Give thanks in all circumstances. The Bible has said that from cover to cover thousands of years ago. Here's why. 
Humans have this glitch in our brain. And it's called, sociologists call it, hedonic adaption. It's from hedonism. And what it means is this, the more that you and I get as humans, the more we want. That we are black holes of desire. And I believe that's actually theological, that we are created for something much greater than this world could ever give us. And so it drives us, hedonic adaption. The more you get, the more you want, right? You get the bigger house, you're in it for a couple of years, you go visit your friends with a better house, what do you want? Bigger house, right? You get a new car, man, you're stoked on your Toyota Corolla. This thing is awesome. And then you're driving your friend's BMW. What do you want? BMW, right? That's called hedonic adaption. Every human has it. It's in us. It drives us. It ruins your happiness. Here is the best, or you could say, the worst example I've ever seen of it. So a number of years ago, someone blessed me by sending me a two-minute clip of this show called My Super Sweet 16. And it's this show where these very wealthy parents put on these extravagant, lavish birthday parties for their daughters when they turn 16, right? And MTV has cameras, and they follow them around. It's this whole thing. So this one was of this girl named Audrey. And Audrey's parents were throwing down $300,000 on her 16th birthday party, right? You're talking money, brilliant money. Well, the day before she's gonna have her $300,000 birthday party, her mom decides that's not enough. I'm also going to give her a $50,000 brand new Lexus. So she drives it up to where the party's gonna be and, and Audrey's there with her 10 buddies and they're all sitting there and she has a big bow on it. So she goes in and says, Audrey, I got a surprise for you, come out. And so the, the cameras follow Audrey, she comes out. She sees the Lexus out there, brand new with a big bow on it and she starts screaming. Not for joy, she is angry. She's saying, mom, you ruined my life. You ruined my birthday. How could you do this to me? Because she gave the gift at the wrong time right? Cussing at her mom. Now, I had some thoughts when I watched that video. <laughs> the first one was, mom, if you want to ruin my life with a $50,000 Lexus, I'll be there for you. No problem. <laughs> the second thought I was, mom, are you getting a belt? Like grab it for one of those boys that's not using it because his pants are on his knees and bend her over a table and spank her. I don't care if it's California and going to jail. That's what she needs. <laughs> That did not happen. Instead, the mom felt self-loathing for herself. I ruined my daughter's birthday. Now, what happened in that moment? Audrey has lived such a life that these numbers are so high that you and I just are shaking our head, but she just keeps adapting to it and adapting to it and adapting to it. And all of us, that's an extreme example, but all of us do the same thing in our own little ways. How do you combat that? One thing, gratitude. The only way you're ever gonna combat that thing that's in every single one of us is to start giving thanks. It's gratitude. Or you will be miserable. I think every believer should have a Thanksgiving journal. Just a piece of paper you're constantly just writing down. This is what I'm thankful for. This is what I'm thankful for. This is what I'm thankful for. I'm thankful for these things. The Bible has been saying it for thousands and thousands of years and science is proving it. Grateful people just people who are thankful, people that look at life through gratefulness are happier, they're more hopeful, 
They're positive, they're more helpful, they're empathetic, they're more likely to forgive, they're less materialistic, they're less depressed, less anxious, less upset, and less angry. All from one thing, being thankful. I'm gonna tell you, you're not getting a better deal than that. There's no better deal than that. By simply being a thankful person, you get this massive plethora of stuff that comes to you. But Matt, my life is hard. I don't think I can be thankful. Okay, there was this study done right after September 11th, 2001. The worst attack on hum- on, in American history, in our history. 3,000 people dead. Brutal. And they started looking at people that were involved in that in some way. Here's what they found. The number two emotion expressed by those people, gratitude. Gratitude. In the midst of the worst thing in our history, gratitude. The number one emotion, sympathy. You think, well, those things seem out of, out of you know, one's sad, one's, what is the deal? It's like a mirror. And what you find is there are a lot of mere emotions. Have you ever gone to a funeral of somebody that you really loved and then had this great story told about them and then just cracked up? Why? It's a mere emotion. They come from the same root. That you can be in very hard circumstances and you can actually find in hard circumstances you're the most thankful you've ever been before because it's that mere emotion that happens to you. Number two. Number two. You want to be happy? In all, give thanks in all circumstances. Number three, want to be happy? Exercise. You're saying, how in the world are you getting there, Matt? How is that biblical? I don't think I see that in the Bible. Okay, here's how. Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sin. They fracture and break God's good earth. What does God say to them? You're cursed, right? Here's the curse. It's Genesis chapter three, verse 17. Cursed is the ground because of you. It's not God doing it. Because of your actions, this is how you have actually broken my good earth. You've trashed it. Cursed is the ground for you. You used to eat an apple and you'd throw it under the ground and boom, out would come an apple tree. Yeah, it's not happening that way anymore. In pain... You shall eat of it all the days of your life. You're going to eat dirt. Thorns and thistles, it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread. Okay? Here's what God's saying. The world's changed. Adam and Eve, it's changed Because now an invader came in called death. And with that invasion called death comes all these problems and all this difficulty and diseases and depression that's come now, okay? But I believe in the middle of the curse, God does something. By the sweat of your brow now, you're gonna eat your bread. All right, so I have a theology based on this verse. Some people have Calvinism. Some people have Arminianism. I have manualism. That we need manual labor. That inside of the very curse, there was redemption. 
that because of the way the world is now, I'm reshaping it. You actually need to sweat and you need to work and you need to exercise or else it's coming faster. And we know that today, right? Billions of dollars are spent every year in America of people going to work out and exercise. And I tell people that spend a lot of money on that, hey, I will save you money. Come to my house, dig a hole. My kids will thank you. Your body will thank you. Right? We know it. We know that exercise is huge in how we live. That it actually makes you healthy. So remember Elijah, we talked about him. So depressed, he was suicidal. And what does God do for him? Gives him a nap. Feeds him really good food. And then says, come from this cave, or come from where you're at, rather, under the broom tree, and go down to Mount Horeb. About 30 miles. Exercise. It was like the divine cure for his depression. You need to exercise. Listen to what Paul says. This is 1 Corinthians 9. 25 through 27. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and I keep it under control. You read Paul, his epistles, Paul was constantly using running analogies, wrestling analogies, boxing analogies, MMA analogies, exercise analogies to illustrate his point. Paul was an exerciser because he knew something. Man, exercise makes you healthy. So I'll give you a study. The study is literally called SMILE. And it's the Stanford Medical Intervention and Long-Term Exercise Study, SMILE. Here's what they did. They took a group of very depressed people. They put half the group on Zoloft. The other half of the group, they had them exercise and they monitored them. Here's what they found. Exercise was just as good at Zoloft at lifting people out of depression. The same, but no side effects. You get side effects with medication. No side effects except for some sore muscles, which are okay. But here's where it gets brilliant. They track them then for six months. The problem with medication is this. Its effects on you get less and less and less and less and less. So the Zoloft group, while it was the same with exercise at the beginning, the Zoloft group slowly but slowly began to lose its effect on people and they went back into depression. The exercise group stayed the same. It never waned. It continued to help people live outside the depression they'd struggled with. Exercise, it's so good for you. Serotonin levels raise, um, you got your, your positive endorphins are all over the place, all from exercise. It's so good for us. It's like this too, here's what they found. That group that before would be like, I don't have any energy, I just gotta stay on my couch, uh, They found the group that exercised, not the group that was on Zoloft, had more energy. Here's the crazy thing about energy. The more you give, the more you get the next day. Have you noticed that? If you'll do a little bit more today, then tomorrow you got a little bit more energy. It's like the craziest thing. It'd be like this. It'd be like, the more you drive your car, the fuller the gas tank gets. How cool would that be? That's the human body. 
Like you look at exercise, and this is the way I think about it. Exercise is a gift from God, right? Go for a jog. While you're jogging, the jessel sap. <laughs> While you're at the jessel sapping, jog with somebody else. Those three right there, oh my goodness. Woo, you're on it. You're on it. You wanna be happy? Serve someone. Be thankful. Exercise. P. Process. Here's what I mean by that. I've been reading the Psalms lately, loving the Psalms. Like I used to not like the Psalms because I like theology and facts and I like I'm an engineer by training and I think an engineer in heart. Like I don't have emotions. I tell people I outsource all my emotions to my wife. She gets them, I don't have them. But like the more I've had kids and the longer I've had kids in my house, the more emotional I've become. Like I can't watch a movie without crying now. No, why it is. I'm like, ah, something's my eye, I'm sorry. Yeah, so Psalms now, because of that, it's like, whoa. And what Psalms are, it's like the psalmists are simply talking out their faith with God. That's what they're doing. They're just talking it out. And it's usually in very hard circumstances. They've been sinned against, they've sinned, they're doubting, they're suffering, they're in very troubled situations and they're just kind of, talking this out, processing out their emotions and what's happening with God. I think every believer that those 150 Psalms are to train you and me to do the same thing. That we're supposed to process stuff out. And science, I think, is catching up with the Psalms. So same group, September 11th, 2001 people. And these are the guys and gals that were on the streets of New York City watching... People jump out of windows and come down and hit the ground. Not very, more, very many things in our world are more traumatic to the brain than seeing events like that. So hard, hard things. They found that those people that were eyewitnesses on the ground watching this stuff happen, they divided into two groups. Group one tried to bury it and ignore it all. I don't want to deal with this. I'm not going to talk about this. I'm not going to think about it. I'm just burying it. Group two said, I got to talk to somebody. I got to work this thing out. You wouldn't believe what I saw, right? They dealt with it. They walked it out. Guess which group struggled more with PTSD? The group that buried it. Because listen, Pain is not a glitch in our system. Pain is a gift from God. It causes us to be more empathetic. It causes us to walk through things. I mean, like, it's called the fellowship of suffering. Some of the best memories I have with my friends is a hard thing that we went to together. Something happens. It's good. The Bible says we're to weep with those that weep. Not bury it. That's what the Psalms do. They deal emotionally. They go through it. That's what we're supposed to do process. Well, Matt, how in the world do I do that? Read the Psalms. I'll give you the formula that you see over and over in the Psalms. Step number one, they write out what's gone bad. God, where are you? God, why is this happening to me? God, what's the deal here? Why did my spouse do that? Why are my kids acting that way? Why isn't my best friend texting me back? They write out what it is that's gone wrong. They put it down. 
But then they do step two. They bring God's truth into it. Okay, in the midst of this, thing that's causing me doubt or pain or suffering, here's the truth. God is able to take what the enemy would want to use for evil and turn it for good. That even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'm not alone. He's with me. Right? I know that all things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purposes. They always bring in God's truth. They're always bringing that in. The king has come. The kingdom has begun. My sins have been forgiven. My destiny is secure. It's bringing in God's truth on it. Matt, that sounds so Pollyannish though. No way. The psalmists are very honest about how cruel and how brutal our world is. Read the Psalms. They're they're not ignoring how bad the world is, but here's what they're doing as well. They're also saying, yeah, but God. Yeah, but God. Yeah, God is able. God is on the throne. This wasn't a surprise to him. God's not in heaven going, what in the world happened down there? That's what they do. That's what they do. And the psalmist choose to say, the truth of God is more important than the truth of my circumstances. And that's what I'm gonna put in my head. It's called magnifying God. I'm magnifying God. His truth is more important than my truth. So we had Carl and Melinda Wilson come in and talk to uh, the staff. I happened to be gone that week. Um, I was in Maui for my 20th anniversary with my wife. It's the cross I must bear. So I wasn't there. But she said something, Melinda Wilson did, that is a money quote. And this is what she said. She said, if it's not good, God's not done. How good is that? Now, why would you say that? Because when God does something, Genesis 1, it's good, 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 very good. Because we know Romans 8, 28, that we know all things work together for good to those that love God and are called according to his purposes. If it's not good, God's not done. His end will be good. God is good and whatever he does is good. So you process. Man, hard things happen totally. Work it out like the psalmists. Work it out. Lastly, S, social. If you've been at Edgewater for any time, you know this is one of my things. That God created us to be social beings, to have connections and friendships, right? We know in Genesis 2, verse 18, God looks at Adam and what does he say? It's not good for you to be alone. This is unhealthy. You without connection, you without friendships, you without a spouse, this is not good. We are in an epidemic today of loneliness in America. Do you know what I think is Jesus Christ's greatest miracle? He was a man in his mid-30s who still had 12 good friends. Right? Men, you know that. As men age, we have fewer and fewer friends. Women always network better than us. So as men age, what we, just, we end up just 
isolating ourselves. And like Adam, God says, it's not good for you to be alone. Like we should already know that from Genesis. And study after study has shown that, hey, in the last 50 years, loneliness is this epidemic that's sweeping our nation like never before. We are the loneliest group ever. So I gave you like a blue, I went to a Blue Zone presentation years ago and Dr. Buchner gave this analogy on loneliness. He said, on the health index, being lonely is equivalent to smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. That's how unhealthy it is. That's why God looked at Adam and said, bro, it's not good. You're like a pack a day smoker. Come on, I'm gonna help you out of this. Look out for this one. I have a New York Times article called How Isolation is Killing Us. And they just look at the health, not emotional well-being or happiness or none of that stuff, just literally the measurable health things that happen to lonely people. And the list is staggering. Heart disease, you can't sleep, insomnia, just unbelievable. Look out for this one, okay? I've been talking about this for a while because of the internet. So everybody remember my air conditioning and TV analogy in the deep south? Oh, really? Okay, we just got long, we're going long today. Okay, so I read this study about 12 years ago. To me, it was just, it was fascinating. They looked at the deep south and how a new technology disrupted the fabric of their community, okay? So prior to 1950, man would go to work, he'd return home. The most comfortable place for that man was not in his hot house, it was out on his front porch, Sipping sweet tea, because that's what you do in the South. And so all the dads would come, they'd be on their front porches. The kids would be out playing. The ladies would be out there as well. And you just had this community happening naturally. For generations, it was that way in the South. That's why they're so hospitable to this day. But then all of a sudden, in 1950, two technologies came in. Air conditioning and television. So now the man drives home after work. Where is the most comfortable place for that man to go? Inside an air-conditioned home, eating his TV dinner, watching television. And so what they said happened with TV and air conditioning was this. It took the family out of community. And this structure that had been here for generations started to dissolve. And you didn't know your neighbors as well anymore. It started to break that thing up. Okay, so that just happened 50, 60 years ago. Well, we have a new technology. It's now come in. And it's this thing called the smartphone and connectivity and social media. Now, what has the smartphone and connectivity and social media done? Well, if AC and TV took the family out of community, I say social media and smartphones have taken the individual out of the family now. So now it's like isolated. You're not even watching TV together, eating TV dinners in your air-conditioned room, are you? No, you're in your own little room or your own little world, just zombied out looking at a phone. That's what you're doing, okay? It's the weirdest thing as a pastor now because I'm now telling people, please watch TV together. Put your phone down and just watch a show together. At least you're talking to commercials or something. It's craziness to me. And yet we all know it's true. You all sense it in your own homes. You see this thing happening. And, and here's the other thing that's fascinating to me. The very architecture of our homes have turned their back on community, have they not? I grew up in a house built, it's 1111 Southwest Foundry. You can drive by it today if you want. 
built in 1908. Massive porch on the front of that thing. No back porch, massive porch on the front of it. Drive down a new subdivision today. Are there massive porches anymore? No, what are they? There'll be these big 4,000 square foot homes and it's almost like ridiculous, these tiny little porches on the front of them. Like four feet by four feet, just big enough for two Mormon missionaries to convert you to Mormonism. That's it. That's all they are. It's a construction term. Do you want a four or two Mormon missionary porch? What do you want? Right? But what's on the back of that house? Big deck, big backyard with an eight foot fence around it. What'd the house just say to people? They don't come here. They'll come here. The very architecture, the way that we are putting our neighborhoods now is now saying, yeah, we don't want community. We don't want it. And I'm just saying this to warn you. Look out. It's a killer, literally, New York Times. It'll kill you. So I was in Maui. And um, my wife and I, you're in the most beautiful place on earth. Like Maui is unbelievable, right? So we had this kind of thing. Every morning we'd walk the beach. It was like a two-mile two, two loop. We'd go up, turn around, come back down. Um, and I loved it. Like the whales were out. So I was constantly just looking for whales. Like, hey, there's a whale. Hey, there's a whale. Hey, there's a whale. And we'd finally like find our spot to nestle down. And I'd be like, hey, there's a whale. And Charity for the first day is like, oh, great. Let me see it. Oh, great. And then after like the third day, she's like, nah, I'm just tanning. Great, honey, great. Go swim with them, all right? I just loved it. So just so much to see. It's brilliant. So we'd be on this walk and we'd be walking and there'd be these other couples that had spent a lot of money to get there. They're on an oceanfront hotel or condo or timeshare. And then they would rent these big beds that were $150 a day that were really close to the ocean. And as I walked by them, I'm going to say conservatively, as I looked up at them, guess what about 70% of them were looking at? Better not be my wife. <laughs> yeah, their phones, Right. And I'd see them and they'd be on their phones and we'd walk down and we'd walk back about 20 minutes or 30 minutes later. Guess what? Still on their same phone. I was just like, are you kidding me? You spent all this money and all this time and all this effort to come to the most beautiful place on earth and you're looking at your phone? Man, look up, look out. I just want to grab some of their phones and throw them in the ocean. You'll thank me later. Look out. Not even talking to their spouse. Man, it's heartbreaking to me. Look out for this thing. It's killing us. Loneliness is an epidemic. Like I think it's a really good discipline to say electronically, I'm Sabbathing from this thing one day a week. I will not touch it. I will not look at it. Your world won't end. Trust me. You'll be happier. And as, thank you, one person. <laughs> <laughs> I call that a grudging applause. <laughs> Dang! Oh! <laughs> so we push back against that with community groups. We say, ah, come, get together, meet in somebody's house, have a meal, talk about Jesus, talk about how we're following him, have mission, celebrate. Nobody has it better than us that we're trying to push back against this thing. Get in community groups. Yeah, but Matt, they're hard. Yeah, I know. Ask Jesus, was having his 12 dudes hard? One of them betrays him. One of them denies him three times. The other all leave him. Was it hard? Yes. But Jesus says it's worth it. 
it's worth it. I'll invest in them. Read the New Testament. See how many times the word you is plural. Rarely is it singular. It's you all, it's you all, it's you all. How many things in the New Testament that God asks us to do are plural? You gotta have somebody else to do it. Forgiveness, can you do that for yourself? Mm -mm. Reconciling, somebody else. Brotherly affection, somebody else. Giving, somebody else. Like the majority of what we're called to do as followers of Jesus require relationship because it's so important for you and me. Is it for me? You wanna be happy? Serve. Hey, Safe Families has happened right after this service. Any way you wanna serve, Safe Family offers an opportunity, giving a kid a ride, fixing a meal, having kids in your home, any level in there. Get involved. Gospel rescue mission, serve somewhere. Number two, be thankful. Goodness, nobody has it better than you and me as kids of the king. Start recognizing that. Exercise, go for a jog with somebody. Process well. Read the Psalms, bathe in them. We're gonna jump into the Psalms. It'll be really fun. And then be social. And you know what? Sometimes it's a discipline. It's easier to go home and do nothing, but it's not better for you. Hard is not bad. Sometimes hard is good. Get involved, stay social. Okay? If you're saying, Matt, I need more help than that. Well, here's the resource list that I, these are the high graded ones. I read about 15 books on happiness for this series. The one I want to recommend, if you're going to read one book, read Happiness by Randy Alcorn. It is a brilliant, not a short one, he's got a short little one, like 100 pages. Read the 450 page one. It is brilliant. Randy Alcorn is amazing. That book is a life changer. If you struggle with happiness, get it, read it. Okay, the other ones are more, um, Max Lucado's is very uh, Max Lucado, so great, but the other ones are more like uh, sociologists and psychologists writing. But here's maybe even a better way. Just read Life of Jesus, because this is what he did. He served people. He was thankful. He exercised. Just naturally 2,000 years ago, guess what you did a lot of? Walking with other people, talking. Brilliant. So helpful. Okay? Did he process? Oh, read when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's under the most horrific weight Jesus processes fully. And he ends by saying, not my will, but your will be done. Did he build relationships? Oh man, oh man. Read the end of John where he rebuilds it with Peter who denied him three times. The effort that would take. He did it, okay? So every Sunday we come to the table and it's not just, oh, this is a great way to end the service. It's our acknowledgement that where we are weak, he's strong. And so maybe one of these things that we've talked about for the last five weeks or say, I can't do that. No, Philippians 4.13, you can do all things through Christ, which strengthens you. So we come to the table saying, Jesus, help me, reform me, remake me, renew me, enable me. And so in a minute, I'm gonna pray. And you're dismissed to grab communion. We'll take it together. If you're on this side, you walk out this way and you walk 
over and then back in. On this side, out that side, back in. And then we'll take it together. So Jesus, today, I want to be able to say, like the psalmist said, happy are the people whose God is Yahweh. Help me to do Philippians 4, 8 every single day to think on things that are true and honorable and just and commendable and lovely and excellent and praiseworthy. Help me to be a man that serves others with my life. Help me to be full of thanksgiving. Help me to understand the gift of exercise and the curse. Help me to process and help me to invest in friendships. And I pray that for all of us here today. Be our strength. Feed us this morning, we ask. We pray this in your name. Amen.